Mama. So, so I hope you had a refreshing day yesterday. Mine was very full, so I wanted to give you just a little snapshot or a short video of my experience at this uh, laboratory, uh, virtual reality laboratory. It was a Saturday, so the 100 researchers who are normally there uh, were not, but the the founder of the laboratory, Massimo, Massimo Bergamasco, who founded it back in 1991, uh, he's my, my friend and host, so he brought me in, and then he had two of his colleagues there, and we went directly to what they call the cave, and the, it's not a cave, it's, <laughs> it's right in the middle of this extremely high-tech you know, laboratory, uh, but the cave is what would maybe maybe five meters by five meters, maybe four, yeah, maybe something like that, a, a room with three walls, and so you come in where there's no wall, and there's no ceiling, but there are a lot of projectors up there. And then, and Masuma and I both came in there. We had to put on little little, little coverings over our, our shoes. And then just putting on the type of glasses you put on when you go to a 3D movie, very low-tech, very ordinary, just 3D. Then they turn all, <laughs> turned on all the projectors, and we went from, they ran one program after another, where you're looking around, and I can see, I can see for, uh, Massimo, he can see me, and the, but we're in this entirely different environment. And then we're being moved 3D through the environment, like, I won't give all the details, because it would take up a, a lot of time, but on one of them, just one of them was, they made, made a computer generation of a region of Livorno, that had been heavily bombed during the war because Livorno was a major naval port. So when the Allies wiped out the naval port, they hit a lot of the city as well, unfortunately. So, but they were able to reconstruct parts of the city with computers that had been destroyed in the war. And so I flew over part of the city. And we went around, we went around. It was like being kind of like a hummingbird. Uh, but you can't see yourself, of course. Um, and, and so we went from one scene to another. We did that for a while. That was very interesting. Rather realistic, although you can see it'd be kind of like the first Mac computers, you know, like they were really cool at the time and now they look like they, they were made by, you know, the Neanderthals. This is the Neanderthal entry of virtual reality. But this is really cutting edge as the early, you know, the early laptops and so forth cutting edge. And then we stopped doing that and then he put, he gave me a very high-tech set of goggles. So now the, the environment is irrelevant because the, the environment is created entirely by the goggles. And he also gave me a little hard hat if I wanted to be kind of more interactive. And then we went through different uh, uh, scenes as well. But then I was on my own. But I could be interacting, so I'd see a 3D environment. And they gave me two little tools to hold in my hand, which I would see my hands in virtual reality. And then I would engage with interactively with with uh, items within the environment. Um, so that went on for maybe half an hour, maybe 40 minutes, where I was constantly in vir- multiple virtual realities, and of course, knew that I was. <laughs> Why I say that is because we're all in virtual reality and we don't necessarily know it. But I'll tell you, the experience, when the, the most remarkable experience I had in the laboratory, and we had hours of wonderful conversation, um, was when I took the goggles off. And I'm not joking. When I took the goggles off, and then I was engaging with Masumo and his two, two fine colleagues, 
it was a very intense experience of virtual reality. It really was. It was just kind of like, yeah, <laughs> everything Atisha said, everything Benjamin, yeah, yeah. I knew it before. I'd been doing this practice a lot, but whoa, this is what it's like. It was very intense of uh, just feeling that everything is just occurring in the space of the mind. It's, at the same time, there was no nihilism. There was no flattening of people to mere appearances. I mean, this is must muscle. We've known it for years, you know. So, and these two other gentlemen very seem like very fine, very open. So, but the the opening phrase from the seven point mind training when starting the teachings on ultimate ultimate bodhicitta, view phenomena as if a dream. Boy, was that easy. <laughs> After being in an actual virtual reality for thirty minutes, taking them off like this is I don't have to try. This is just yeah, and then. The, after Atisha goes through the ultimate bodhicitta teachings on what to do in meditation, then as you recall, you should, you should recall, then Tunsam Gyumeki Burja, between sessions, act as if you were an illusory being. Act as if you were a character in, you know, a figure in virtual reality. Because I was in a machine shop. And anybody who knows me, this is like hilarious because, <laughs> you know, there's Neanderthals, five year olds, and then there are people who know engineering. I am right there, the Neanderthal, between Neanderthal and five-year-old, in terms of my mechanical ability and skill and natural giftedness. You know, like, how do you turn this, this cell phone on? I, I, I forgot. It's not working. It's broken. <laughs> my cell phone is not working. You know, it's kind of like, that's where I am. And so here I was fixing this complex <laughs> machine, and he invited me, actually, to put one box, and then it blew up. He actually encouraged me to do that and blew up and I looked down at my, my virtual hands and they were singed. <laughs> See, this is why, you know, and this, they actually sold this software to a company so that they would be able to learn how to affix these, these complex machines and show them if they did it wrong, then they would have an explosion and they would be, you know, blow themselves up. But it's much nicer to do that in virtual reality rather than, you know, contrary. So... And then I can just say, now just to summarize about five hours of conversation, six hours, um, enormous interest and openness, not only among Masmo, who's a Tibetan Buddhist and we're old friends, but among these two colleagues, and one of them a neuroscientist, the other, the, he was um, Andrea, and then I think it was, I think it was Giuseppe, he was running the, all the programs for the virtuality. He seemed very, very nice, but I didn't really get a chance to speak with him. But, uh, but I did have a chance to speak with Andrea, who's one of the researchers in the laboratory, and his area is EEG, neuroscience, and looking at uh, consciousness deficit or deficit problems, Alzheimer's and so forth. So they're, they're really trying to make their research practical to help people in a myriad of ways. It's not just, you know, very esoteric stuff. But we spoke at length about the possibility of doing research here at the, up at, up at the um, Castellina Maritima property. I will very likely be doing research together. Uh, next year, in the, in the spring retreat, taking place right here. That'll be basically April and May of next year. They're very keen to do that. Very keen for long-term collaboration. And then with this fellow, Andrea, who I, I had corresponded with about a year ago, but never met him. Then I was just speaking with Massimo and him, and I was just telling them. I, I turned to Andrea especially and said, Andrea, uh, I'm not asking you to believe what I'm about to say, but I'll tell you, I believe what I'm about to say. And I told him about this yogi in the south of Bhutan, who is very accomplished in samadhi and, and can generate virtual reality leopard and deer 
with his mind that other people can see. And he's, hmm. <laughs> And I said, you know, I said, I'm asking you to believe it. I'm, I'm saying this, having been, you know, involved in Tibetan Buddhism for 45 years, has earned my trust. Uh, but I said, you know, the thing is, it's either true or false. It's not like ridiculous or amazing, it's just true or false. And if it's true or false, then perhaps I could work with the Lama who told me of this, and maybe we could bring a, t- a team of scientists there and study it, you know. If they're willing to show it to Tibetans, why not to Westerners? So that was the day. It was very interesting. And, uh, and then I, but then, you know, it was also, I could see this as really early, early stages, because when I had this very complex big set of goggles, you know, it looked like a zombie on my head, it, I had an umbilical cord, you know, a, a big, thick electrical cord going back to the to the machine. Uh, and so I, I couldn't go very far because I'd feel it's kind of pulling on the back of my neck. And I thought, well, uh, obviously that has to go. You, know, you want to be able to move much more freely. But then I had a glimpse into the future. I mean, you know, I can't say how many, because I'm not a futurist, I don't have any clairvoyance, but maybe it's 10, maybe 20, 30 years ahead. But I brought something with me that imagine this kind of goggle set of the future that is now you know, like what, like what a cell phone is compared to the computers back in the 60s. Like this is more powerful than any of them, right? Um, here is a set of goggles of the future. And also we know how technology has gotten cheap, better and better and better and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, right? So I'm going to show you a pair of goggles that is state-of-the-art maybe 30 years from now and really inexpensive. And what you can see with these goggles on is unbelievable. I'm serious. You think I'm joking. I'm not joking. I mean, 3D, extremely vivid, virtual reality that you can repeat again and again. You can manipulate it. You can also tap into the substrate (laughs) while wearing them. (laughs) And they cost only $15. And I reached into the future and plucked one out and brought it back. And here it is. You ready? You ready? Here I go. <laughs> it comes with an accessory, and the accessory is free. It's called a human mind. And uh, so there we are. That was fun. And all of this, you know, I've been trying to weave all the way through, and I'm not going to start going into kind of a, you know, kind of a lot of citations. But it is important that we thoroughly integrate the whole notion of wisdom and method, the integration of the two. And so we have all of this is the wisdom side, right? It's about developing shamatha and then exploring the nature of the mind, the nature of reality and to which the mind is related. But all of the, and then seeing this virtual reality, seeing that all the people who appear it was so intense when I took those goggles off and I'm having this enjoyable conversation with these three individuals um, that it was just, it was kind of like, it was almost giving me vertigo. Like, oh, this is really virtual. And I didn't say anything. I didn't you know, act weird or anything, but I, I kind of, <laughs> this is really intense. you know. And seeing so vividly uh, that all the appearances I had of these people I was speaking with were all arising in the space of my mind, and they were not out there. They're just appearances. And of course, what makes this not solipsistic, 
and not nihilistic, not wildly egocentric, is the very clear perception or awareness that they have their own perspectives. And I am, all the appearances of me are arising in their minds. And yet here we are, each of us within our, you know, within our environment, and yet interconnected and influencing each other. And none of us real, all of us experience, be, consisting of and seeing empty appearances. But as in a dream, as in virtual reality, we're clearly influencing each other, you know. So relating this now to the fourth of the four measurables, because it's, it's not a stretch. It really kind of fits very smoothly. What I'd like to do is go to the practice now and really have it an unguided meditation, so front-loaded. But so we all know equanimity, right? And that is this even-heartedness, attending to others, where it's really the culmination of the first three of the four immeasurables, and that is with loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, viewing others equally, with an equally open heart, unconditional loving-kindness, unconditional compassion, and empathetic joy. And then it's the culmination, the grand finale of the three, of all, all of the four, four immeasurables. And then we can take a step back and say, well, why aren't we experiencing that already? Why aren't we? I mean, all sentient beings have the same Buddha nature. All sentient beings have the same brightly shining mind as the substrate. That's the ground of becoming for all sentient beings, however they may manifest. Uh, and then, so why don't we treat everybody like that? That's, that's real. So why aren't we treating everybody like that? And then the answer is very clear. And that is some people behave in very disagreeable, appear disagreeably. Some people, some people physically very, very unattractive or even repulsive. If you've ever seen people with leprosy and so forth, not attractive to look at and so forth and so on. And then some, so, and then, and then much more, much more important, much more gripping than mere super uh, visual appearance. But the way people behave on occasion is very, very disagreeable. The kind of attitudes they express, sometimes the tone of voice, what they say, how they say, sometimes very disagreeable. Right? And so, but where's all that coming from? And it's all coming from, what all that really matters, if we ask that, where's it really coming from? All that which is disagreeable in terms of physical appearance, as well as voice, as well as mental attitudes expressed, all that is disagreeable, and you know, it all comes from delusion. Because out of delusion comes craving and hostility. Out of delusion craving hostility comes all matter of unwholesome or non-virtuous behavior. And karmically speaking, there's so many accounts of this in the sutras uh, pertaining to karma, that if one engages in unwholesome actions and still manages one way or another to get a human rebirth, that will manifest as one's physical form. And the physical form will not be appealing. It will be unattractive. And, uh, you know, and, and the karma could have been hundreds of lifetimes ago. So it's not saying this, this is a bad person because they're unattractive. It's just saying this is what's ripening right now. Uh, and likewise, when people behave in very disagreeable ways, maybe sometimes horrible ways, this all is an expression of one thing, and that is delusion. It's coming out of ignorance and delusion. Right? But then, so, to see through that, but then to see through all of that, there's that, let alone rikpa, but just on that brightly shining mind, this is the ground state of this person when not, when not arising or manifesting in a way that's warped, twisted, contorted by mental afflictions. Because that's what mental afflictions do. The, the klesha, klishta. Klishta means to warp, to distort. So this brightly shining mind, its transparency, its purity, when it's filtered through the mental afflictions, it gets warped and sometimes looks ugly or manifests with really harmful speech or terrible 
views, attitudes, beliefs, and so on. But that, it's like the groundwater. The groundwater is pure. And then it gets filtered through the mental elections and it's toxic. And maybe even disgusting to look at, you know? So to see through that, then we can cultivate equanimity. And then likewise, some people physically very attractive. Sometimes just sheer physical beauty, but some other times are attractive as male, female. But sometimes it's not just the physical beauty, but they're just so pleasing, you know? And this can be 80-year-old people, 60, and not, not a matter of sexual attractiveness. But so isn't true that some people are all different kind of ages, just very pleasant, you know, just agreeable. And they just say, well, this is, could this per- person, this man or woman be a model? No, not that kind of beauty, but just so pleasant to look at. And sometimes the voice is so pleasant to hear, you know. And then, of course, the way people behave, sometimes pleasant, agreeable, virtuous. You just want to be with them because it's just such a good feeling, right? But let's focus on, focus on the, so all of those, where does that come from? comes from virtue. It comes from virtue. Again, go back to the teachings on karma. If a person lives a very ethical life, a very very generous life, a very kindly life, karmically speaking, then coming back as a human being, the person comes back with great physical attractiveness. You know? It's, it's fruition of karma. But, if a, but I have seen this over the you know, decades I've been around. There are people that I know who have lived very virtuous lives. Whatever their bone structure is, whatever their genetics, you know, for their physical appearance, but they've lived very gentle, loving, kind, compassionate, virtuous lives. And what I've seen time and time again, male or female, is that they're, they're just something so pleasant, so pleasing about their appearance, you know. And it's kind of like more important than cheekbones and skin and I kind of like just this person just, just like looking at them, you know. And then you know it has really nothing to do with sexuality, sex, you know, survival and proc- procreation business. Uh, that is then expression of virtue in this lifetime. I've seen it many, many times. So, but when we're drawn to something, I've I've really I've thought about for a long time, is when when we're drawn to physical attractiveness. So so back you know, just from baseline hedonic. This person's very attractive. Um, one can wonder why you know. Why, why attractive? Why, why drawn to? And I think a deeper reason than just sex, you know, propagation. I'm going to pass on my genes, biological imperative, um, because ugly people can pass on, you know, make kids as, as well as attractive people. They know better if, if that's the only thing to pass on your genes. Just find a good, sturdy woman and a man who can protect your kids. That's all that matters. It's all that really matters. Does she have good, broad hip bones? You know, be able to birth the kids, and can the man be big, big and strong enough to beat off the saber-toothed tigers when they come? It pretty much boils down to that, right? And then just bring that into the 21st century. But then why the beauty? Why the beauty? And my, uh, I have a very clear answer in my mind. Beauty is an expression, it's a karmic result of virtue. It is. I mean, that's the Buddhist view, true or false. That is the Buddhist view. Uh, and we're drawn to virtue. We're drawn to virtue. That's it. And so we're seeing the outer flow. Now sometimes, unfortunately, the physical beauty does not correspond inwardly to an inward beauty. And then after a while, that wears really thin. That is, one is physically drawn to some person. And then the better, the better and better you get to know them, the more you distance. So it, looked, it was the karmic fruition of virtue. But then you see the virtue isn't being continued. And then unless you, all you care about is you know, tactile sensations, 
uh, you know, just visual, phys- uh, sensual, sensual pleasure, then the then sense of being enamored by uh, this person, it wanes. It wanes. It really wears off. And that's why you don't care anymore. Because the person's unwholesome qualities are shining, overwhelming the physical beauty. It happened a lot. So there we are. So, but here I think is the basis for our the difficulty of attending to all sentient, let's just say human beings for the time being, the difficulty. The disagreeable is rooted in ignorance and delusion, and the agreeable in all different, all different manifestations is rooted in virtue. But in the virtue, it just means that the, the, the brightly shiny mind is, is, is not very veiled, and in the non-virtue, the ignorance, it's more veiled. But the brightly shiny mind is the same. So this is where wisdom, I think, really is imperative. If we don't have wisdom, we will, we will be looking at the surfaces, because we don't, that's all we see. And I think for a lot of people, that's it. Uh, who are the, how, you met a number of people today, how were they? This one was very disagreeable, this one was very agreeable, I found this one extremely boring, this one was drop-dead gorgeous, this one was, ooh, really ugly. And, and then that's how they were. And you simply described all your appearances. You know, and then judge them as, they are as I saw them, and this one gets an A, this one D minus, this one this, 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 and you walk away, and the world is all choppy, because it's just made up of three types of sentient beings, attractive, unattractive, and boring. You know, And that, as we just say it, we're right back into exactly, we're up to a neck in I-it relationship, of objectifying other sentient beings as if they were mere objects. We find some agreeable, some disagreeable, and some boring. Right. So here we are to cultivate simultaneously wisdom, and unconditionality of loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy. So please find a comfortable posture. So I'll give guidance just towards the beginning of the session, and then it will be silent. perfect balance, neither abiding in samsara nor in nirvana, perfectly awake, and non-dually aware of both, of course, is a Buddha. So with the aspiration for the sake of all sentient beings to achieve perfect awakening, the non-abiding enlightenment of a Buddha, let subtle body, speech, and mind in the natural state.
When we've settled the mind in this natural state, and we've settled in our closest approximation to resting in this abstract consciousness and viewing the mind from that still, lucid, relatively non-conceptual perspective, unstructured by human concepts, one of the most important discoveries of contemplative science and utterly unknown to the modern world. It's everything. Resting there, your awareness at rest in its own place, sustaining that flow of cognizance without distraction, without grasping. With the luminosity of your awareness, illuminating the space of the mind, but without entering into and cognitively fusing with and then reifying whatever appears to the mind, simply being aware of whatever arises with discerning intelligence. As you direct your awareness now to the space of the mind and to whatever arises therein, Now we shift from the shamatha practice to the classic practice of Tonglen. As we continue with the, with the or initiate the Tonglen practice, with which I think you're familiar, I invite you now just to, in a way, continue the shamatha practice of allowing appearances to arise unimpededly, without censorship, without seeking direct, to direct them or modify them. But instead of simply observing appearances as appearances, when the appearance of any sentient being arises in the space of your mind, noting the appearance as an appearance, but then making a cognitive shift. And that is by way of the appearance of whoever comes to mind. Attend to the person him or herself. Attend to a sentient being. Even if that person has passed away, the mind stream is still there. If the basis of designation of the person is the subtle mind stream, then this person is every bit as existent now as when he or she was alive. See who comes to mind. 
Observe carefully how they come to mind, whether as someone pleasant or unpleasant, agreeable or disagreeable, virtuous or non-virtuous, or in between. Attend to the appearance. Attend to the mode of appearance. Observe the attraction or the aversion arising. And then, as if you put on the goggles of the eyes of wisdom, by way of the appearances, attend to the sentient being. One who, just like you, wishes for happiness and freedom from suffering. Attend to that person closely until he or she becomes real to you. You have a clear sense of their subjectivity. And then with every out-breath, breathe out the light of loving-kindness from your heart, embracing, engulfing, permeating. This person with the light of loving-kindness, with every in-breath, imagine whatever darkness of mental afflictions, obscurations, negative karma. Imagine this being drawn in as you breathe in, drawing in this dark light and dissolving without trace in your heart. So for the rest of the session, let your awareness be free and loose. Whoever comes to mind, invite them in and practice evenly. Whether the person who comes to mind is agreeable, disagreeable, or indifferent, Let's continue practicing in silence until the last minute or so.
attend to one person after another, and you're about to move on to the next, see that you've purified your vision of the person you've just attended to. As you imagine drawing away and dissolving all their mental afflictions and obscurations, and imbuing them, saturating them with the light of loving-kindness and purity. Before you move on, imagine them to be free. And imagine them to embody these virtues, flowing forth spontaneously, unimpededly, from the ground of their being. So one by one, purify your vision of every person who comes to mind. Expand the space of your mind in all directions. Breathe in and breathe out to all sentient beings, above and below and to all the sides. Release all appearances and aspirations and simply let your awareness rest as you've done before.
when we do this type of practice, we have, may have the sense that, well, this is how I'm purifying my way of regarding this person, and this person, and that person. And that's true. But much more deeply, what we're really doing is purifying our own minds. Because every person who comes up, as they appear to our own minds, are completely, every aspect, every, every bit of information uh, in the appearances of other people to our minds, every bit comes from our own minds and from no place else. Right? No bits travel through space, no images travel through space. We have no idea what that person's, we cannot visualize, put it that way. I won't say no idea. We cannot imagine what is it like to be that person from their perspective. And in fact, we don't know. So what we do know is how they're appearing to us. It's always you, me, you, me, you, me, they, me, they, me, you, me, you, me, right? It's always, I'm always the cook. And all the ingredients, all the colors are coming from one's own mind. So it's not different than dreaming in this regard. And that is... If you meet really disgusting people and attractive and wonderful people in your dream, they are nothing other than personifications of different aspects of your own mind, of course. And that's no more or less true during the daytime than in dream state. Seems like it. That's because we reify. We're going to spend a bit of time this afternoon, maybe to tomorrow, but certainly this afternoon, just doing a brief flyover, a scan of these so-called five paths and how they map onto the four yogas. Because after all, this, the reason I'm still teaching and not just in retreat all the time is for the sake of really trying to highlight the path. Right? And this is the path of four yogas. If one is complacent or satisfied, let's say, with viewing other sentient beings, one can say, as they really are. And that is, some are just nasty, and some are really attractive, and some are really great. And that's what's really going on. That's what I see, and everybody sees. I mean, we can point the big villains in the world, and we, can, we all agree on the really incredibly attractive women and the incredibly handsome men. We all agree it must be true. So now let's start practicing Dharma. You can. It will take you three countless eons to proceed through those five paths. And that's if you're lucky. The Dalai Lama said it could take seven. Right? On the other hand, there is the choice of, with wisdom, learning how to cultivate pure vision, as we do on the Vajrayana. And then you can go through those with pure vision, with the insight backing that, with state of generation, state of completion. Uh, then you can collapse eons into years. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's by seeing through the veneer and seeing through the essence. In Vajrayana, of course, you're not just looking to the substrate consciousness. You're, you must be seeing the emptiness of others and then looking right through to the Buddha nature. And of course, it's not other people are great and I'm terrible. You're developing self-divine pride. right? So you're seeing through the veneers, all the pleasant and unpleasant veneers of yourself, seeing all of those are just empty appearances. Even your identity as a sentient being is empty of inherent nature. Seeing right through that, dissolving, utterly deconstructing your soul, whole sense, every aspect of your sense, body, speech, and mind, into emptiness. Seeing they're just, what, however they appear, they're just empty appearances. And so basically, just turning off the program, 
I mean, I, we did this time and time again yesterday. We're finished with that program, whoop, and then you're another virtual reality. And no, more, no one of them was any more real than the other, of course. Just turn off the program. When you see it's a program that got turned on with ignorance, turn off the program. It's a choice you can make. And turn on a new program. Out of emptiness, then arise yourself with pure vision, divine pride. And then what makes Dzogchen powerful as, they will, as so many of the great masters have, have stated, what really makes it powerful is the preliminary practices. It's the Guru Yoga. Developing that relationship with one, at least one person. One person. That will be, that will be enough. To, with one person, one Guru. If you have more Gurus, and you can do that equally for more Gurus, some of them incredibly lofty beings like His Holiness, uh, some of them completely ordinary people, beings like myself, but still... And performing the role of a lama for some people, but totally ordinary. And then there's an enormous spectrum between those two. If in that spectrum of a lama who's a very, very ordinary person to one is absolutely extraordinary, if you equally, for lamas with different degrees of insight and so forth, equally can deconstruct your conception of each one, this one's ordinary, this one's quite great, this is off the charts, amazing, this is vidyadhara. That's how they appear to your mind. Deconstruct all of those into emptiness. Because genuine Guru Yoga is not hierarchical. This yoga, th- th- this teacher, pretty ordinary, but still good. Good for something. I can use him. This one's pretty great. Yeah, this one's quite good. This one's amazing. I just, oh, I, go, I, I, I really prostrated this one. This one's so incredible. If you're doing that, you're not practicing Guru Yoga. That's called being a cheerleader. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> but the big lamas in Ordinary lamas. Yippee! All the superficiality of a cheerleader. I like this one. He's so profound. This one, ordinary. He's like me. You can. But you're back on the three countless young track. So to see through that, that pure vision, and then these preliminary practices, authentic relationship with the Guru, but this is Vajrayana Guru Yoga, and then viewing, and and it just gets more difficult from there. Because then viewing exactly a sangha like this, I have, I think, I hope you all know, a lot of respect for all of you here. I mean, I, I'm listening to a lot of you, and I know Glenn is listening to those one-on-one that I cannot. But your dedication, the ethics, the sense of courtesy, uh, the attentiveness, intelligence, and so forth, really good. So it's not too hard to then view your Vajra siblings we're not literally Vajra siblings here. We've not had an empowerment. We're not all Vajra brothers and sisters in terms of Vajrayana practice. For some, yes. Others, not. But to develop that pure vision with respect to, uh, to Vajra siblings, seeing each one as viras and dakinis, that really gets powerful, powerful. And then all of the sentient beings as family. You know, That's what really, that's the kind of this massive engine that drives state regeneration completion, that drives Shamadeva Vipassana texture Tutkel, is that if you if you say, oh, that's just preliminary practice, get on with it. You're back to the three countless eon track. Because you've left everything untouched. The guru is just a really nice person, very helpful, very articulate, or whatever. And Dharma buddies, well, up and down, komsi komsa, whatever. And sentient beings, bunch of schmucks, they're really yuck. This is really samsara. Degenerate era, I don't like people much. Three countless eons, at, at best, you know, that's when you've achieved this, the Mahayana state, a path of accumulation. Your clock isn't ticking yet. The timer has not started on your three countless eons. 
until you become a bodhisattva. So sorry, that was the bad news. So, there was a tiny, oh yeah, and then all sentient beings is best. So that's what gives it its power. And then we can see why this equanimity is the basis for everything we do. Geshe Raptin taught me two practices, Vajrasattva, to clear out my junk, and then this practice. Those are the two, two first two practices he gave me. You know, unburden yourself of all the junk you brought with you for the first 20 years and all the pre- previous lifetimes. And then here's your foundation for all of your practice from now on. That was the first time I had instruction from him one-on-one. So there we are. Enjoy your day. Act as illusory beings. That's all. <laughs>